Father, as we begin this new uh, series and this new book, we pray that the, the, these ancient stories, these accounts of uh, these people who lived so long ago, uh, that, that we would see how they point us to your son, Jesus, and then what this, these things mean for us in our lives today. Please open our eyes by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what makes a good leader? Since um, Nelson Mandela died a few years ago, many stories about him have circulated in the media. Um, he was a very humble man, it is said. Wherever he went, he would make his own bed. I was struck by a story of his absolute courage and determination. You know, as you know, he was in prison from 1962 to 1990. On at least six occasions during that time, he was offered his freedom, but always with conditions attached. You know, you must live here, you must give up your struggle. And on the sixth occasion in 1985, he said this, I cherish my own freedom dearly, but I care even more for your freedom, the people of his country. What freedom am I being offered while the organisation of the people remains banned? Only free people can negotiate. I cannot and will not give any undertaking at a time when I and you, the people, are not free. So he remained in prison for another five years. That, that was a great leader who was committed not to his own personal freedom and security and safety, but the freedom and equality of all people in his country in South Africa. Now, at the other end of the scale is uh, Kim Jong-il, the father of the current North Korean dictator. Uh, Kim Jong-il uh, died at the end of uh, uh, 2011, nearly 10 years ago now. Here, here are some facts about him, if you didn't know. Um, official biographers claim that his birth at Baikdu Mountain was foretold by a swallow and heralded by the appearance of a double rainbow over the mountain and a new star in the heavens. In his first round of golf, aged 52 in 1994, he is reported to have scored 11 hole-in-ones and achieved 38 under par over 18 holes, an achievement sadly observed only by his 17 security officials who were there to protect him. Though when he died, many on Twitter did mourn the loss to the golfing world. But such extraordinary stories only distract, of course, from the appalling reality of life in his regime and indeed in the one that, that follows, which made 200,000 people political prisoners and uh, continues to tightly control every aspect of its nation's life. Well, I guess in between those two extremes, you know, Nelson Mandela, King Jong-il, we'll be able to think of other good and bad leaders on the world stage and the qualities that make them good or bad leaders. What about closer to home? What makes a good leader at work? What makes a good leader at church? What makes a good leader in the home? You can, you can probably think of both good and bad examples in those contexts as well. You might say that a good leader doesn't leave people behind. Here we go. Some ducks out for a walk. Oh, what's going on here? And oh dear. <laughs> so the poor old, uh, not such a good picture of, of leadership. But um, one interesting thing to note in our culture today is that there is simultaneously a huge 
interest in leadership, you know, thousands of books and study materials and courses all about being a better leader, but there's also a deep suspicion and cynicism about leadership, isn't there? Uh, whether we're talking, you know, Brexit or Trump or how the government handles a pandemic, whichever side you're on on these things, there is a great suspicion and cynicism about the whole thing and motives and what people are trying to get out of it and all the rest of it. Amongst all the books on leadership, however, you won't find much on the question of how to choose the right leader. Who, what kind of leader you ought to follow. There's plenty on how to be, supposedly, you know, a great leader. But actually, for, for most of us, an even more important question is, what kind of person do I want to, to follow? What kind of person do I vote for? What kind of person do I want to lead my church or my home or my small group or my, um, or what do we want, what kind of leader do you want leading in the children's work in the church? Or what kind of person is worth following in the workplace? What kind of person is best avoided in our lives? And that, that is the kind of question that emerges in these chapters in 1 Samuel. See, Israel was a nation looking for leadership. Remember where we are in the Bible story? Um, you know, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the, you know, got the, the fall right at the sort of creation and the fall right at the start, the promises to Abraham, and then you get the beginning of their fulfillment through the journey out of slavery to the promised land, and they're on the edge of the promised land at the, at the end of Deuteronomy. Then Joshua, they enter the land. And then Judges, well, things haven't gone completely to plan during the conquest in Joshua. And God's people end up in this cycle of sin and disobedience. And then oppression and judgment at the hands of other nations. And then they cry out to God and they're given a judge, a saviour to save them. And then they get complacent and they go back to sin and disobedience. And there's this kind of spiral that gets worse and worse and worse, completely out of control. And Judges, which is the, the last big book, there's, there's Ruth in between, which is a bit different, but the last big book before 1 Samuel, it finishes, if you flip back a couple of pages, you'll see verse 25 of the final chapter. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. So we're looking for a king, we're looking for a leader. And then we get one and two Samuel, and then we get one and two kings. Ooh, wonder what that's about. One and two, and we, we might think, well, great, finally. And we, we know we, we, by the time you get to the end of, of kings, well, you've seen some things uh, in, begin to get sorted, promises fulfilled. Uh, Israel, where they're supposed to be with a king, at least up till about chapter 10, chapter 11 in one kings. But no, then they end up in uh, civil war, and then finally in exile. Something goes terribly wrong. And so one and then two Samuel, where we are now, are about how Israel ended up with a king. And what we will see is that the king they thought they wanted was very different from the king they really needed. That's the title that we're giving this series in 1 Samuel this term. There's the king that we want, but that is very different often from the king that we need. And 1 Samuel's going to help us understand the difference. With all the, the, the talk of kings, you would expect 1 Samuel to take us somewhere significant and impressive 
as it begins. You know, we're going to be finding out about where Israel's king comes from. So let's, let's start somewhere important. But no, it takes us to somewhere very unimportant and unimpressive. But when we're, while we're there in chapter 1, we get to ask a very important question, which is this. Does God care for his people? Does God care for his people? And that's where we start at the beginning of this uh, this chapter as we look at it. So, first of all, verses 1 to 8, the question to start with, does God care for his people? There was a, man, there was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimate. Well, I'm sure you're all very familiar with these people. I'm not, well, I'm not sure I am. These are, the point is, these are people that we haven't heard of. Through these strange names that are difficult to pronounce. They don't, you know, they're not listed uh, in the rest of the Bible. You don't get to discover great things about who they were and what they did. This is, these are people we haven't heard of. This man, Elkanah, is a normal Israelite man. But unlike the terrible stories of the judges... He's living a normal, righteous life. He's getting on with loving his wife. In fact, he's getting on with loving his two wives. Now, polygamy in the Bible never ends well. Uh, It's never held up as a good idea. Um, But in these less-than-ideal circumstances, Elkanah is trying his best to do the right thing by his wives, and especially by his wife, Hannah, who is unable to have children. And we learn why the Lord had closed her womb. And this causes Penina to provoke and tease her. And, and verse 7, she is moved to tears and misery. Now, in any culture, any time, childlessness can be a very real and sad thing for for a couple, and, and indeed for anybody who would love to have a child, but for whatever reason is unable to. But this is not just the story of Hannah and her childlessness. It is the story of God's people. It's the story of Israel. And the thing is, barrenness in Israel wasn't just a very difficult thing for the individual. It was a sign of God withholding his blessing. So Deuteronomy 7.14 makes promises on, um, about children. So if you look at this, Deuteronomy 7.14, you will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. See, in, in, in that time, in that people, having uh, children was a sign of God's blessing, of being able to continue the promises, continue the line. And so when, when you're somebody who is not able to do that, uh, it, it, it's, it's even more than just a personal crisis. The question in these opening verses is not just, God, does God care for this woman as she struggles with childlessness, but does God care for this nation in the context of it falling apart in the time of the judges? Will God bless his people or will they continue to struggle. In the face of their inability to conceive, there was only one conclusion for this couple. 
God is the bringer of life. He's the giver of life. God has closed her womb. Well, what is God doing? Why is this happening? I guess many of us will be able to empathise with that question in our own lives for one reason or another, in different ways, as we struggle to make sense of our circumstances. The thing about Hannah is that if we just focus on her, we're in danger of missing the big picture of what is going on. God is not simply engaging with one childless woman. He's engaging with this entire nation struggling with a lack of leadership. And this, this slightly muted, unpromising start reminds us unpromising situations can be the start of something big. In a place we've never heard of, and the average Israelite will have little knowledge of, this woman's tears are the start of something neither she nor God's people could have expected. And we see that in the next little section, verses 9 to 18. We see a prayer, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. Hannah turns to pray, and her prayers are full of tears of misery. Look at that, verse 10. Remember me, she says. Not that she thinks that God has forgotten who she is, but remember me in the sense of act positively on my behalf, like when God remembered Noah in Genesis and brought the rain um, to, to a close in accordance with his promise. And the word she uses for, uh, for her misery again points to how this isn't simply a story about her. She, well, the word she uses, she speaks of her affliction which is how Moses described the plight of God's people in Exodus. She, she, what she's saying is, please God, remember me in my affliction like you remembered the Israelites and like you rem rescued them from slavery. And by the end of the book of Judges, God's people were indeed afflicted and miserable. So, she prays. Now, does it strike you as strange at all that that she prays like this when it is clear that the Lord has closed her womb and her rival Peninnah has picked up on that and is teasing her. You know, many of us might think, well, that's it, God. You know, you've got it in for me. I'm not talking to you. But she does the opposite. Lord, this is really painful. But where else can I turn? This is what you might call the logic of faith versus the logic of unbelief. In faith, even when we don't understand why God has arranged things in a particular way, we choose to trust him. We go to him in prayer. We pour out the situation before him. In, in, in unbelief, we go the other way. We fold our arms and we refuse to pray. It's like in, in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, uh, many, there's a point in John chapter 6 where many of Jesus' followers um, hear what he's saying and think, no, I don't like this, and they turn away and they no longer follow him. And then his closest followers, he turns to them and he says, are you going to turn away too? And they say, well, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, there's nowhere else to go. That's the logic of faith. Even if the one you're trusting is, um, seems to be causing things to be difficult, and more difficult in one sense than they might be otherwise if you went your own way. But where else can you go? So you go to him. And that's what Hannah does. She prays to the God that she believes is in charge. 
Well, is she bargaining with him as she promises to dedicate any child born as a, as a Nazarite? That means somebody particularly devoted to God's service. Numbers chapter 6 is the place to look at that later if you want to. But no, it's not a bargain. This is a humble prayer to a God that she really believes is in charge. So as she prays, and you see, she prays, Lord Almighty. And, and offering her unborn child to God is a way of recognizing that every good thing comes from him. Everything belongs to him. It's not that we get to keep some things for ourselves and some things, you know, have to be for him. No, it's all for him. And it's the same for us, isn't it, with our work, our talents, our time, our money, our relationships. We don't get to keep some or most of it for ourselves and our own benefit. No, it's all for him. And sometimes it takes not having these things that we really value to help us understand this. But she goes on, and the narrator emphasises her anguish. Eli, we're told, thinks that she's drunk, but no, she's praying fervently. Would you like to be able to pray like this? It's not being a great prayer that makes you pray like this. It's believing in a great God. The God that Hannah believed and trusted even while she struggled and suffered. So we've had this question, does God care? We've had a prayer, Lord, remember me. And then uh, thirdly and finally, an answer. The Lord remembered. From verse 19 to the end. Elkanah and Hannah conceive a child. The Lord remembers her just as she prayed. She names him Samuel. Which sounds like the word for asking. And then she fulfills what she had promised off you go when you've weaned him, says Elkanah in verse 23, only may the Lord make good, or may he establish his word. Now, hang on a minute, is that, is that a little bit odd? Has the Lord spoken any words at this point? Well, no, the word is his promise. May the Lord fulfill his promise, not just to Hannah, but to the whole of his people. Samuel is then given to God. What will God do with this servant devoted to him? Well, that's what we're going to see in the following chapters. How then does this speak into our lives in the 21st century? Well, the thing is, when we read Old Testament narrative, it's tempting to try and read ourselves into the story. So, you know, we read this and we think, oh, am I supposed to be like Elkanah? So this would be a, this would be the, a moral example of acting honourably towards our spouse, or indeed our two spouses, surely not. So be like Elkanah can't quite be the message of this chapter. What about Hannah? You know, is the point that we should learn to pray like she did? Now, praying like she did is clearly a good idea. But we just have to be careful, don't we? Because if we focus just on her prayer... We end up drawing the conclusion that says, well, pray like Hannah did, and then God will give you what you want. You know, this is the kind of prayer that God answers. So, so you've got to really sort of work out what it is that Hannah's doing here and emulate that, and then you'll get what you're looking for. Or, 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 or the flip side of that then is, now actually the reason you are still 
childless or still without a job or still struggling in singleness or still struggling in an unhappy marriage or you're struggling in depression the reason that you're you're experiencing all these things as a christian is because you have not yet prayed like hannah so what you need to well it's your fault really then isn't it you need to try harder to be like hannah and pray more so you see, we have to be really careful as we read these narratives, not to just glibly read ourselves into the story and apply it to ourselves like that. And, and, and the reason for that is that, that that reading of Hannah like that has to be wrong because there are plenty of faithful and godly people in the Bible and in our experiences as Christians in the world today who have prayed uh, for children, as, as she prays here, and their prayers have not been answered. And, and there would surely have been plenty of those people in Israel, just as much as there are today. But rather than trying to read a human moral into the story, we need to see how this chapter is actually about God before it's about Elkanah and Hannah. It's about how God cared for Hannah and how he cared for Hannah in order then to care for his people. The birth of Samuel, as we will see, is key to the establishing of kings in Israel. And the surprising thing is where the story starts, not with the powerful, but with a struggling, sobbing woman. Actually, barrenness is a theme throughout the Bible. We see it with Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, in the New Testament with Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, as we head there towards another unexpected, surprising birth in the birth of Jesus in all of these situations God is saying I am the God who keeps his promises even when the human situation looks bleak when it comes to defining and choosing effective leadership for God's people the real question isn't you know which qualities are the ones that we need but a simple question Will we trust God to keep the promises he has made? Even in the tears, even in the struggles, even in the times we're struggling to understand why he's doing what he's doing. The answer to our deepest hopes and desires may not lie where we, where we think it does. If, you, if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, if you're still looking into Christian things, this is what we need to understand. The Bible is showing us that our lives are not about us. And the Christian faith is not about our own desires simply being met if we press the right buttons and pray to God in the right way. This is about understanding that the world revolves, first of all, around God and his plan. And actually, that is good news for human beings, not bad news. It's good news as we find our place in his plan for the world and as we learn then to trust him, to stop looking to ourselves to solve our problems but to look to him. That's the beginning of Christian faith. Who would have looked twice at miserable, weeping Hannah for the answer to Israel's problems? You, 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 you wouldn't think the solution that God's people need would start in a family of nobodies. You wouldn't think the solution God's people need would find its ultimate fulfillment in a place where the animals slept in Bethlehem or at a place of execution outside Jerusalem. You wouldn't think God would use a collection of mere human beings lacking obvious worldly power to achieve his purposes as the church. 
in the world today. So spoiler alert, already 1 Samuel is beginning to point us to where we need to look for the answer to what the best leadership looks like. In the face of sin, death, suffering, injustice, pain, frustration, mess, the leader that we need in the end is God himself. So will we trust him? Let's pray now. Father, thank you that we can turn to you in the face of the brokenness of the world around us and the brokenness of our own hearts caused by our sin and rebellion. Thank you that we can know that that in the midst of all the, the brokenness of our world, that you have acted in your son Jesus to turn things around. Help us to find our place in that plan. To trust you when things are painful and difficult right here, right now. To know that you are a God who will keep his promises and who we can trust with the nitty-gritty of our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.